This edition of the Mumbrella Cast is brought to you by Sesame. Being chased by the content beast? Get Sesame, the magic marketing platform that creates and shares branded content at scale in no time. Slaughter the content beast with Sesame now. Go to sesame.com. That's S-E-S-I-M-I dot com. Welcome to a special edition of the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Mumbrella's editor-at-large, Tim Burrows. What you're about to hear is the first chapter of the audio edition of my book, Media Unmade. If you enjoy it and want to hear the rest, you'll need to sign up to the Unmade email at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Now let's get on with it. Prologue. In Sydney, it was the afternoon of Monday, the 6th of December, 2010. In Las Vegas, it was still the weekend. Anthony Catalano was on a US holiday with his future third wife, Stephanie. They were taking a break after the busiest and most successful months in the cat's career. Back on the 28th of April, With the backing of Victoria's biggest real estate agents, his redundancy payout from The Age, and a loan from Stephanie, he'd launched The Weekly Review in Melbourne. The glossy magazine had instantly gobbled up half of the lucrative Victorian property ads of his former employer, Fairfax Media. And now, the fast-talking, business-obsessed journo-turned-entrepreneur was developing a plan to take the rest. The cat and Stephanie were enjoying late-night cocktails in a poolside bar at the five-star Wynn Casino. They were wrapped up snugly. The desert gets cold at night. It was the couple's first proper break since the launch. Although things were looking good for the young business, they hadn't completely pushed the boat out. They'd flown premium economy. A few hours earlier... Catalano had read a news story on The Age website with interest. Brian McCarthy, the boss of Fairfax Media, was out. Catalano's old mentor, Greg Highwood, who'd returned to Fairfax as a board director just a few weeks before, was the new acting CEO. Catalano's mobile phone rang. It was Highwood. Well, 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 this is a surprise. Catalano told him. Highwood came straight to the point. I'm calling to fix this fuck-up you've created for us in Victoria. Introduction. You're gonna miss us when we're gone. You might know how this story ends, but it's easy to forget how we got here as Australia's media navigated its most disruptive decade. This is a story of media people being dealt bad hands and playing them as well as they possibly could, and occasionally, brilliantly. Sometimes, they altered the fate of their organisations. Sometimes, despite their best efforts, it was already too late. Nine nearly went broke before emerging from the decade that began in 2010 as Australia's biggest media company. News Corp descended into civil war between its editors and its management before concluding that its future lay in the pockets of consumers more than advertisers. And Lachlan Murdoch took a winding path away from his father Rupert with disaster at Network 10 and triumph at Nova Entertainment before returning as heir apparent. Catalyzed by the mismanagement of the Bauer family, Australia's magazine industry collapsed in on itself. There was a sad sense of inevitability that three of Australia's most important newspaper mastheads, The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Australian Financial Review, were on the print extinction timeline too, before they somehow figured out how to stop the clock. But there was to be no rescue of the local newspapers wiped out during covid For supporters of public service broadcasting, there was the frustration of watching Mark Scott chisel out a lead for the ABC in the new digital world, only to see it followed by the fumblings of his successor, Michel Guthrie, 
before hostility from the coalition government put Auntie on what seemed like a permanent back foot. Digital disruption helped break the old media business model as classified advertising leaked away. The weaponisation of social media helped break democracy and Australia's regulators belatedly tried to confront Google's and Facebook's growing power as those tech giants took control of the plumbing and the economics of the entire digital publishing ecosystem. Then came the defining day in 2021 when Facebook deleted Australian news from its news feed. Media habits changed entirely. Phones got smart. The ads started following us around the web and we began streaming our music and our TV shows. A series of new online publishers such as The Guardian, Junkie, The Conversation and The Daily Mail found local niches while others like BuzzFeed, The Global Mail, The Punch and Huffington Post struggled. New fortunes were made thanks to bubbles like group buying and content marketing and to emerging trends such as the second coming of outdoor advertising and the rise of social media influencers. The entrepreneurial Anthony Catalano elbowed his way in as the decade's newest media mogul. There was the shock of a silly prank call by two radio presenters leading to a suicide and the beginning of Today FM's decline. And Australia's commercial radio landscape was remade when Kyle Sanderlands and Jackie Henderson defected to new station Kiss FM. It was a decade of unending rounds of redundancies for media workers, made all the worse when the Covid recession stopped the advertising market in its tracks and wiped out more than a thousand media jobs. But what you may not know is how it all happened. I watched the change from up close. I was once a print journo. I'm old enough to have done my cadetship with a manual typewriter before, much later, being seduced by the world of blogging. I was close to the action, covering the beat for my media and marketing website Mumbrella, which I started with my colleague Martin Lane in 2008. A big part of our business model was based on organising conferences for people working in media and marketing to talk about how their world was changing. I was around when the media world had its moment of doubt and pain. There was never a time when domain expertise would count for more. Whether it was nine CEO David Gingell's lifelong immersion in television News Corp proprietor Rupert Murdoch's six decades of seeing around corners, or Greg Highwood's last throw of the dice rescue of Fairfax Media's newspaper publishing model. It took more than dumb luck to win. There was hubris and incompetence too, but not as much as you might think. When an industry is growing, everybody looks clever. The people who ran media businesses in good times were fated. In decades gone by, they were often simply lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. For the winners back then, the prizes were huge. A monopolistic, profitable media company was once a very profitable thing indeed. And we'll get to those rivers of gold soon enough. It's much more difficult to do well when the trends are against you. And by 2010, the beginning of the decade, when the disruption created by digital media became impossible to ignore, the cards had mostly been dealt. The iPhone was two years old. Free-to-air TV audiences would never be as big again. Newspaper sales had peaked. Magazine sales were already falling. Facebook had started selling targeted ads. The technological advances that had made media cheaper to produce than ever before were spawning an army of new competitors with ever lower cost bases. And the global financial crisis had made sure that any media company that owed money, and lots of them did, was going to struggle to keep that debt under control. The media industry is a high-stakes prize in itself. By 2010, advertising was worth an estimated $13 billion a year in Australia and perhaps $500 billion globally. 
but the real stakes were much bigger. The importance of the media's contribution to modern culture is impossible to summarise. Media is culture. For more than a century, the traditional media was how ideas spread. Through telling the news, the media defined moments in people's lives, big and small. Through journalists, the public learned of politics and pandemics, and more prosaically, Through the ads that accompanied their favourite shows, they were persuaded to drive Holden's, advertise in the yellow pages, and eat four and twenty pies. For the first time in human history, most of the tribe were doing the same thing at the same time, watching TV after dinner. For five decades, the most culturally significant entertainment form was broadcast television. Advertisements may have been what made newspapers so profitable, but it was journalism that coloured and strengthened the fabric of society. The rivers of gold flowed into oceans of information. As important as the financial rewards and the cultural impact were, another prize attracted many proprietors. Power. Those who own the media influenced the politicians. It was just a question of whether they chose to exercise that power. And this was the decade where the model broke. Everyone could see it coming, but nobody knew what to do about it. Least of all those who were trying to cling on to what they already had. In 2009, technologist Clay Shirky warned about the consequences for newspaper journalism in a blog post that reverberated around the media world. It was written for an American audience, but Shirky's warning applies just as much to Australia. Print media does much of society's heavy journalistic lifting, from flooding the zone, covering every angle of a huge story, to the daily grind of attending the city council meeting, just in case. This coverage creates benefits even for people who aren't newspaper readers because the work of print journalists is used by everyone from politicians to district attorneys to talk radio hosts to bloggers. The newspaper people often note that newspapers benefit society as a whole. This is true, but irrelevant to the problem at hand. You're going to miss us when we're gone has never been much of a business model. So who covers all that news if some significant fraction of the currently employed newspaper people lose their jobs? I don't know. Nobody knows. Everyone had a favourite quote to sum things up. As you'll hear, the favourite of ABC boss Mark Scott was from The Leopard. If we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. Tech commentator Scott Galloway's came from Lenin and summed up the impact of COVID. There are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. And there were more and more weeks like that. And on stage at the first Mumbrella 360 conference in 2011, media strategist Chris Stevenson told the audience, change will never be this slow again. He was correct. In Australia, things looked bleak. Two authoritative books, Who Killed Channel 9 by Gerald Stone and Killing Fairfax by Pamela Williams, captured the moments when Nine and Fairfax were at their lowest ebbs. Somebody had to figure out what to do next. Not just to save journalism, but for a far less altruistic reason. There was still money to be made in the media business. Smart leaders could play their hands as well as they could possibly be played and still lose. What's difficult to see from the outside are the other constraints these media executives faced. Staff revolt, change-resistant boards, internal politics, growing debts or plain bad luck would have as much impact as the disruptive march of history. These factors meant that where Australia's media ended up was not inevitable. A handful of individuals made big calls. The organisations that came through best were the ones whose thoughtful CEOs with deep domain expertise were backed by supportive boards and given the time to develop and execute a new strategy. 
they had to completely unmake what had gone before. This is a human story too. Even tough media company CEOs cry when they lose their jobs. This was media unmade and remade. This is the story of the people who found new futures for their media companies and the ones who failed trying. Act 1. The Unmaking Chapter 1. Greg and the Lost Cat In which Fairfax Media fires boss Brian McCarthy and former staffer Anthony Catalano launches a startup that imperils the media giant whose new boss, Greg Highwood, works out a radical plan to cut costs. I'm trespassing inside the ugliest basement in Sydney. I'm in the delivery bay of the Wentworth building on the University of Sydney's Darlington campus. Unlike the Hogwarts and sandstone glamour of the university's quadrangle, this building is the kind of concrete ugly that even fans of brutalist architecture would struggle to love. The stark, breeze-block-lined delivery bay hasn't seen a lick of paint since it was built in 1972. I try to keep my voice calmer than I feel as I talk into the lens of our video camera, hoping that nobody demands to know what we're up to. It's the 30th of September 2010, and I'm chasing a tip from a contact within the news agency world. He's told me Fairfax Media is artificially boosting its circulation numbers by printing more copies of the Sydney Morning Herald than readers are buying. If we can stand up the story, it will be a great scoop for Mumbrella. Our audience of marketers and media agency buyers would be outraged if they're paying for ads in newspapers that are never going to be opened. The newspaper circulation system doesn't just work on trust. The Audit Bureau of Circulations issues a certificate to confirm that publishers have printed the number of papers they say they have. The Bureau even scrutinises invoices to ensure publishers are using as much newsprint and ink as their circulation figures demand. But with consumer habits changing fast, getting those papers into readers' hands is becoming harder. Officially, newspaper circulations are steady. The newspaper industry's dirty secret is that it's already lost far more newspaper buyers than it admits. If it wasn't for the hijinks of newspaper circulation departments, the audited numbers would already be falling. One scheme to keep the numbers up sees organisers of big sports events buy piles of newspapers at one cent per copy, which are in reality thrown in as part of a bigger advertising deal. Spectators can take a free copy if they want. Most don't, so they get chucked away afterwards. In the trade, they're nicknamed car park copies. Now, publishers have started dumping copies at universities. They'll go into a special audit bureau category labelled education copies. Technically, it's within the audit rules. Students sign up for a heavily discounted subscription at the start of term, usually to get some sort of free gift. So long as those papers make it as far as the campus, nobody checks whether the students collect them each day. And of course, they don't. A fortnight earlier, the Crikey newsletter leaked an internal memo between executives at Fairfax Media's The Age. It warned that advertisers in Melbourne would demand their money back if they knew how many educational copies were being claimed as sales. Talking to my news agency contact about the Crikey story, he tells me there's a similar thing going on in Sydney, which explains why I'm in the delivery bay for the University of Sydney's news agency. We've found thousands of copies of the previous day's Sydney Morning Herald. In a few hours, they'll be taken away for recycling without a reader ever touching them. Mumbrella's video producer, Brooke Hemphill, keeps an eye out for security and films me while I perform on-camera mathematics. I'm surrounded by bundles of newspapers, stacked onto pallets up to the height of my shoulders. On camera, I count 15 newspapers in each bundle. The bundles are stacked three by three on each pallet and about nine bundles high. That's 12 or 1300 newspapers per pallet. I tell the camera. Then I count pallets. There are seven. 
we've found approximately 8,000 newspapers that are never going to be picked up by a reader. And that's just one day's edition. Six weeks later, the next set of audit numbers is officially released. The Sydney Morning Herald saw a slight fall of 1.8%, to 204,421 copies officially sold. The newspaper has narrowly avoided the embarrassing milestone of falling below 200,000 audited daily copies for the first time since audits began. Those 8,000 rogue copies we found in the basement made all the difference. These shenanigans, however, are not the real problem facing newspapers. They're a symptom. Five months earlier, strife of Brian. It had been a long time since anything good had happened in the Fairfax media boardroom. The recent past had been a tragedy for what had once been one of the world's great publishing companies. And the future was looking even worse. Overseas, newspapers were going broke. And if something didn't change, the same was going to happen in Australia. The board wasn't ready to accept it just yet. They'd been asking themselves the wrong questions. The issue was no longer about the Fairfax legacy. They should have been asking whether it was too late to save the newspapers. By 2010, Fairfax media's glory days belonged to another century. Dusty old anecdotes now succeeded by grinding rounds of cost-cutting in the absence of any other strategy. Warwick Fairfax's ill-timed, legacy-shredding takeover of the company from the rest of his family was now merely a nightmare from 20 years ago. The young man who couldn't wait was out of the media business and running an executive coaching business in Annapolis, Maryland. Conrad Black's subsequent five years as proprietor had fizzled out with the high-living British-Canadian peer giving up on John Fairfax Holdings after being unable to engineer a law change to allow him to take a controlling stake. He too was now in the US, living a radically different life in the low-security Coleman Federal Correctional Complex in Florida after being convicted of defrauding his shareholders. And Kerry Packer's decades-long stalking of the company that had once linked him to claims of tax evasion and worse, as the businessman codenamed Goanna in the Costigan Royal Commission's investigation into criminal activities, had finally ended with the mogul's death at the age of 68 in 2005. In other ways, Fairfax had come full circle. A member of the family was again at the boardroom table after the company's 2007 merger with John B. Fairfax's Rural Press. The B distinguished him from the first John Fairfax of the newspaper empire, who came to Sydney in 1838. But John B. was the largest shareholder of a much diminished company. The board, now led by former Woolworths boss Roger Corbett, after the rancorous ousting of Ron Walker in November 2009, was divided and in denial about the disruption its business model was already facing. John B. Fairfax himself, who would have preferred to be chairman, did not feel particularly welcome in the boardroom, despite holding 14.6% of the company's shares as a result of the merger. It wasn't the first time in the 17 decades since the company's founding in 1841 that it faced an existential challenge. With a harmonious, experienced board and a settled management team, Fairfax Media might just have been able to do what it had always done, launch into new media and buy out challenges once they became a problem. Over the years, the company had bought or launched newspapers, radio stations, magazines and TV networks as threats had emerged. Fairfax Media had once been a true multimedia empire. In radio, the company's Macquarie Radio Network had owned stations across the country's six capital cities. In television, Fairfax Holdings was in from the start of the medium, building what was to become the Seven Network. In magazines, the company's stable had once included the likes of Business Review Weekly, Cosmopolitan, Woman's Day, People, Dolly and Good Housekeeping. In newspapers, 
Fairfax had once been bigger than Rupert Murdoch's News Limited. In television and magazines, Fairfax had once been a feared competitor for Kerry Packer. But much of it had been sold off in the wake of Young Warwick's 1987 folly and the ensuing stock market crash. Fairfax was now running out of time and options. By 2010, the main assets were the newspaper mastheads, a dying BRW magazine and a half-decent radio network. Rural Press had been John B. Fairfax's portfolio of more than 100 local and regional papers, including mastheads such as the Canberra Times, the Newcastle Herald and the Illawarra Mercury, sold to him by his half-brother Warwick during the ill-fated takeover. The merger had brought those community papers back together with three of the country's most prestigious mastheads, the Sydney Morning Herald, Melbourne's The Age and National Business Title. Australian Financial Review. In radio, all Fairfax really had going for it now was talk station 3AW, Melbourne's top rating network, picked up as part of the company's ill-judged $1.3 billion purchase of the Southern Cross radio network and big brother production company Southern Star in 2007. In Sydney, Fairfax Media's 2UE was being tranced by its talk rival 2GB. Before 2GB's proprietor, John Singleton, engineered the 2002 defection of Alan Jones, who took the audience with him, 2UE had been the top rating and most profitable radio station in the country. At least the simple business economics of radio, where ratings equal revenue, had barely changed over the previous half century. It was a different matter for newspapers. For many decades... Newspaper ownership had been a wonderful thing, with money flowing in from all directions. For starters, there was circulation revenue, the price paid by readers at the newsagent or via subscriptions. But this was little more than the cream on top compared to the most lucrative source of revenue, advertising. There were two highly profitable types of advertising, display and classified. For display ads, think of those full-page brand-building ads for banks, car companies and the like. For classified advertising, newspapers were the places people found jobs, bought houses and sold their cars. It was a virtuous circle. The more copies sold of a newspaper, the more circulation revenue. More readers meant being able to charge advertisers more, particularly if they were the upmarket readers that the Fairfax mastheads tended to attract. News Limited's tabloids may have had more readers, but they had less spending power, making them less attractive to advertisers. The more classified ads that appeared, the more reasons there were for readers to buy the paper. And it wasn't just jobs, cars and houses. It was any type of business or personal announcement. Before the internet, if you wanted to know what time a movie started, or whether your team was playing home or away, you'd buy a paper. And before social media and cheap phone calls, the way to inform the world of the family's happiest and saddest moments was through the hatches, matches and dispatches of the births, marriages and deaths section. Many readers didn't even care what was on the front page. The news was a bonus. For most successful publishers, the role of the journalism in the mix was hard to pin down in business terms. Reader habit was important and... In the scheme of things, journalism seemed worth investing in. It was impossible to quantify. But the greater the investment in journalism, the better the publications did in the long term. The importance of reader trust was understood but not calculated. After becoming CEO in 1999, Fairfax's Fred Hilmer had offended his journalists by describing them as content providers for the advertising platforms. But he wasn't wrong. For the newspaper owners, even the madly expensive business of publishing, owning printing presses and running a distribution network to achieve the daily miracle of getting newspapers to doorsteps across the country was more of a plus than a minus. Business analysts like economic moats. And that giant cost of printing and distributing newspapers was the ultimate moat. 
a new competitor might have to commit to years of gigantic losses before they could ever hope to make a profit. The moats went deeper than that. In the buying and selling of display advertising, habit helps the incumbents. For the most part, big brands don't buy their ads directly. They appoint media agencies. The idea is that media agencies have the expertise to help a brand allocate its advertising budget in the most efficient way possible to reach whoever the target audience might be. That's why you might find a Maserati print ad in the Australian Financial Review targeting wealthy captains of industry and a Coles ad on 10 during MasterChef to capture grocery shoppers. Because a media agency works for dozens of clients, they can negotiate a better price than an advertiser would be able to get on their own. That's based on the agency negotiating a deal each year, promising to put a certain percentage of its spend with any given media owner. The bigger the discount, the greater the proportion of their budget they'll promise the media company. Until new players can reach a critical mass, it's hard to break into that cosy media agency system. That too was another moat. There was one other important factor that made it nice to be a proprietor. Power. Some chose not to overtly exercise their power, but others, most notably Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch, used the power to persuade politicians to legislate favourably on matters such as media ownership restrictions or to pursue regime change when they did not. The business of newspaper publishing has always been about both upholding democracy and undermining it. The publishing economics had already begun to change. In the 1990s, former Fairfax and News Limited editor Eric Beecher had been one of the first to breach Fairfax's economic moat by launching publishing house Text Media with business partner Di Gribble. To defend the ramparts from Text Media's property title, Melbourne Weekly, which threatened to snatch the real estate ads, Fairfax bought out the company for $65 million in 2005. After buying his business, Fairfax asked Beecher for advice too, inviting him to analyse the company's future. Beecher's counsel did not go down well with board director Roger Corbett, who'd later become the chairman. As Beecher wrote in The Monthly, I had been asked by the board to develop a report about the company's business model and future. I spent an hour or so presenting my thoughts to the board, starting with a hypothetical catastrophe scenario, which I suggested could result from a large migration of classified advertising to the internet. My key argument was that if the board rated the risk of such a scenario at any more than 10%, it should take decisive action as an insurance policy. I explained to the directors that the financial success of Fairfax directly subsidises the health and effectiveness of the most important quality journalism in this country, and that I believed the board should act quickly because there is now a realistic possibility of the catastrophe scenario occurring over the next two to four years. After I finished, Corbett walked to the head of the board table and picked up a copy of one of Fairfax's hefty Saturday broadsheets, bulging with classified ads from a nearby pile. He didn't want anyone coming into that boardroom again, saying that people will buy houses or cars or look for jobs without... This, he told his fellow directors. He then dropped the paper onto the table with a thud. Beecher was, of course, soon to be proved correct about the catastrophe. The days of newspapers being thick enough to land with a thud were coming to an end. Those classifieds were soon to migrate online, where those economic moats offered no protection. To make matters worse, Fairfax's traditional enemies had already been investing online. The job site Seek, founded by Paul and Andrew Bassett back in 1997, had already become the best place to find a new job. James and Kerry Packer had bought a 25% stake in it in 2003. Car sales, created by Greg Roebuck and Wal Piscotta, had also launched in 1997. 
the Packers bought 41% in 2005. And realestate.com.au, founded in 1995, had aligned with News Limited in 2000 when Lachlan Murdoch negotiated a bargain investment of $2.25 million in cash, plus $7 million worth of ads and marketing, for a hefty 44% stake. Fairfax had circled, dipping its toe into each of these new ventures, but failed to commit to any. If the Fairfax board, notable for the lack of experienced media people, was lacking a strategic direction, there was little to be had from the office of the CEO either. Occupying the seat in 2010 was Brian McCarthy, former boss of Rural Press, who'd come across with the merger as second in command. He was the wrong man for the job. McCarthy had ascended to the top role in 2008 after John B. Fairfax had led a coup against incumbent CEO David Kirk, the former All Black who'd been running Fairfax before the merger. One of the reasons Rural Press had agreed to the merger in the first place was that the company mistakenly thought that Fairfax Media would have a better plan to tackle the rise of the internet. But now McCarthy, who'd been planning for retirement even before the merger, was in charge of the whole thing. For a while, it became a reverse takeover. With the exception of Fairfax holdout Jack Matthews, whose digital fiefdom mostly continued to run its own race, rural press executives had been promoted into most of the key roles in the Sydney HQ. And McCarthy appeared to have only one golf club in the bag. Keeping costs tightly controlled had seen rural press operate efficiently and profitably from its headquarters at the edge of the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. Now the same approach was being applied inside the Fairfax Media Headquarters in Sydney's Piermont. The rounds of redundancy had already begun. There'd been a big one in 2008. Nonetheless, profits and the company's share price kept falling. Fairfax Media would never again be the $9 billion giant it had been at the time of the merger. A nice round number. If they hadn't worked it out already, then on Friday the 30th of April 2010, the upper levels of Fairfax realised that there was a new contender for the company's worst commercial decision. Anthony Catalano, made expensively redundant by Fairfax just 18 months earlier, launched the weekly review in Melbourne. After years of attempting to persuade the powers that be at Fairfax that there was another way to control the real estate advertising market while he worked there, Catalano had taken his redundancy payment and done it for himself. The second highest paid person in Fairfax's Melbourne operation, Catalano was one of 550 staff shown the door on the 26th of August 2008. But the timing of his exit after 18 years and six days with the company, had still come as a surprise to him, albeit something of a welcome one. Catalano, by then running the company's Victorian marketing and print sales, had been clashing with managing director Don Churchill and advertising sales boss David Hoth. Hoth had previously worked in newspapers in the UK, and Churchill had been running Fairfax's The Dominion Post in New Zealand, before beating Catalano to the Melbourne MD job. Local knowledge was in short supply. They knew nothing about the market, Catalano says dismissively. Factor in Andrew Jaspin, previously editor of The Observer and The Scotsman in the UK, as editor-in-chief of The Age, and Catalano was one of the few senior executives with long-term relationships with the publication's clients in Australia's most clubbable city. Catalano was openly critical of some of the decisions being made by Churchill and Hoth. His redundancy perhaps had as much to do with internal politics as it did with his $491,000 pay packet. He concedes, they did not like me at all. Although Catalano had made up his mind that he'd take a redundancy if it was offered, the way it was handled left him with something to prove. After being given the news by Churchill, he was to be shown out of the door by security staff. First, he was accompanied back to his office to collect his possessions. He insisted on a moment of privacy to call his wife. When Churchill stepped out, Catalano told her, 
we've won Tats Lotto. Initially, the company offered $540,000 for the redundancy payout. In the weeks that followed, Catalano threatened to go legal, arguing for additional entitlements and that it had not been a genuine redundancy in that he hadn't been considered for other roles. Eventually, he received $970,000. The jobless Catalano then won the lotto a second time. After he left, Ron Walker's reign as chairman of Fairfax Media ended too. Walker, who later died in 2018, had been Mr Melbourne with deep contacts in the real estate world. He'd have been able to defend Fairfax from what Catalano had in mind. Walker's exit created a window for Catalano to take a crack at an idea he'd championed at Fairfax for at least five years. All those real estate ads might ultimately be paid for by the people wanting to sell their homes, but the decision makers were the real estate agents. Give those agents part ownership of a new publication and they'd be heavily incentivized to nudge the ads in that direction. Catalano had the contacts to pull it off. As a young reporter, he'd moved from the police beat to sub-editing, to covering real estate, before being talent spotted for a commercial role by Greg Highwood, who had just moved across from Sydney to become the age's editor-in-chief and publisher. Highwood recalls the first time he met Catalano at a lunch with real estate clients. When I first sat down and heard him talk, I thought he must have been one of the salespeople. As Catalano progressed from property editor to leading the real estate classifieds business, Highwood, 13 years his senior, had become his mentor. I really liked Greg and looked up to him, says Catalano. That was until, as so often became the case at Fairfax, Highwood had fallen to internal politics. CEO Fred Hilmer, an academic who'd never run a media business before, got rid of him in 2003. Highwood recalls, The business was a disaster. I could see where it was going. By 2003, I was so frustrated. Hilmer did a restructure and I wasn't in it. Catalano says of Highwood's ousting, after 28 years with Fairfax, I've never been more gutted in my professional life. The company had self-harm in its DNA. Catalano's years of dealing with the Melbourne real estate industry were going to be invaluable for what he did next. After his non-compete period expired, he started approaching real estate agents. By the end of 2009, the biggest four real estate agencies had signed up to his idea. A midweek publication for Melbourne with high production values, more akin to a glossy magazine than a local newspaper. This would hurt Fairfax Media's Melbourne Weekly, but for now, leave the ages weekend real estate ads safe. Catalano found office space in a disused cafe in Port Melbourne. The exodus of staff from Fairfax provided the beginnings of a team to work on the magazine. Catalano recruited Eileen Berry to lead the publishing operation. Berry had been a journalist at The Age for the best part of two decades, including a stint as the newspaper's pre-press operations manager, the link between editorial advertising and the print works, and the enforcer to ensure the publication went to press on time. With the real estate agents signed up, it became a race to launch before Fairfax could get wind of the plan and find a way of scuppering it. They allowed themselves 16 weeks, ready for launch in June 2010. Eventually, inevitably, Fairfax found out some of the plan. On Saturday the 13th of March, a news story appeared in The Age. A company search had revealed that Catalano was in business with the real estate agencies. The publicly available information, if one knew where to look on ASIC's company register, revealed that Gerald Delaney, owner of agency Kay and Burton, had a 15.6% stake in the weekly review and was chairman. The other agencies were listed too. The agents became nervous. What might Fairfax do to strike back? The agents still needed access to the age's large weekend audience. Catalano calmed their nerves, arguing that, in turn, Fairfax still needed their weekend dollars, so it could not afford to freeze them out. 
But he compressed the timeline. The 16 weeks to launch was cut to just nine, ready for what was now a launch on the 28th of April. Even with the advanced funding of the agents, it took everything Catalano owned, and loans on top of that, to get the first edition out of the door. There was no line of credit to be had from the printers. They wanted their $400,000 for the first print run, up front. And suddenly, Catalano was an overnight success, 20 years in the making. Running to 292 pages, that first edition of the Weekly Review was stuffed with the sort of property ads previously found in Melbourne Weekly, sold to Fairfax by Eric Beecher just five years before. Before the real estate ads, the magazine opened to the ultimate aspirational advertising, a double-page Ferrari ad from supercar dealers Marinello Motorsport. Next came an opinion column from Melbourne journalism doyen Virginia Trioli, the then newly appointed host of ABC News Breakfast. Then there was a chunky feature on the launch of the, disastrously short-lived as it happened, Melbourne Talk Radio, as a competitor to Fairfax's 3AW. Then came pages and pages of real estate ads. Right from the first edition, most of Fairfax's midweek real estate advertising market shifted away to Catalano, just as it had leaked across to Beecher's The Melbourne Weekly the last time around. History was repeating itself. Years later, Catalano reels off the dates and details of the launch from memory. The first edition turned a profit of $258,000. By the time we launched, 92% of the market share had shifted across to us. The weekly review would go on to make a $4.8 million profit in its first year. Fairfax's economic moat had been spectacularly breached. News Limited came knocking almost straight away. Fairfax's greatest enemy wanted to buy. Catalano talked to Peter Blunden, Managing Director of News Limited's Herald and Weekly Times Group in Melbourne, and to Sydney-based CEO John Hardigan. The conversation became serious. They nearly got there. Catalano was willing to sell 25% of his young company. News Limited offered $20 million, effectively valuing the new business at $80 million. I told them, if you give me $25 million, we can do a deal. Value it $100 million, and that will give the agencies confidence that they've built something of value. Also, it's a nice round number, but they wouldn't budge. Extinction Timeline Soon, Catalano would be working with his old mentor, Greg Highwood, again. After the successful launch of the Weekly Review in 2010, he asked Highwood to be chairman. Highwood was out of the media game and was CEO of Tourism Victoria. Trying to tempt him onto his board, Catalano shared the details of his strategy for taking the rest of Fairfax's real estate revenues. Having weakened Fairfax's Melbourne Weekly in midweek, in the second phase they'd come for the ages weekend real estate ads. Fairfax's $15 million in real estate revenue had already fallen to $7 million, and potentially it risked becoming a $5 million loss maker for the company, Catalano calculated. And in the third stage of his plan, the weekly review would go digital to take on Fairfax's real estate website domain in cyberspace too. In terms of media industry pedigree, Highwood was the real deal. He'd started with Fairfax as a reporter in the Australian Financial Review's Melbourne office in 1976, before going to the Canberra Bureau in 1977. He went on to be London correspondent in 1980, before coming back as Canberra Bureau chief, ahead of a stint in Washington as US correspondent. Before being ousted by Hilmer, he'd been editor-in-chief of the big three Fairfax titles, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age, and the Australian Financial Review. His final years as publisher had been frustrating for Highwood. While Fairfax had been making digital investments, he'd been unable to win investment in getting the Masthead's classified advertising online. The publishers were pushing to invest. We could see where it was going, he recalls. But the board could not. 
But Highwood would not be joining Catalano. Suddenly, it became hard for Catalano to get hold of him. The reason became clear a few weeks later. Catalano was not the only one to appreciate Highwood's expertise. Fairfax Media had plenty of business people on the board, but were lacking those with experience in the media. The board commissioned headhunters, Spencer Stewart, to find somebody who understood the publishing industry. Recalls Highwood, they needed somebody with hands-on newspaper experience. They had done the rural press takeover, which was a disaster. They were starting to get hit by structural change in a big way. In October 2010, Fairfax Media announced that Highwood was returning as board director. Over in Sydney, CEO Brian McCarthy was losing the confidence of his board. They called in management consultants, Bain & Co. The board would insist that McCarthy take the advice of Bain, which was presented internally in August 2010, and turn towards a more digital-facing strategy. The future of newspapers was looking increasingly gloomy, even if, despite the cuts, every year Fairfax journalists would win more trophies at the Walkley Awards for Journalism than any other organisation. The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald continued to be authoritative broadsheets full of investigative stories from serious-minded journalists, but they duplicated costs and competed with each other. Meanwhile, the online editions, theage.com.au and smh.com.au, took a more populist route designed to keep readers clicking. More traffic meant more digital ad revenue. At the end of August 2010, the Newspaper Publishers Association, largely funded by Fairfax and News Limited, held its annual Future Forum conference. It featured a keynote from futurist Ross Dawson, who laid out a newspaper extinction timeline. Across most of the developed world, newspapers were in their final 12 years as print products, Dawson informed the audience. By 2022, newspapers as we know them will be irrelevant in Australia. On the 23rd of November, McCarthy finally made the presentation to investors at Fairfax's Darling Island headquarters. More watched online. The plan was that he'd talk up the company's digital credentials. As an ASX-listed company, investor sentiment was crucial. On paper, the ASX announcement that coincided with McCarthy's presentation made sense. The print and online teams would move into one unit that would house both The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Advertiser complaints that they had to talk to multiple people to place an ad across the group would be addressed with a national sales team. Regional publishing, the old rural press group, would be a separate unit, as would the Australian Financial Review. And the company finally acknowledged that it would need to put more of its content behind paywalls. At the time, the Australian Financial Review was the only title with any sort of digital subscription offering. The announcement couched it in low-key terms. We will charge for content wherever possible, particularly for online and emerging platforms that provide new revenue streams. And low-key was the tenor of the event too. The strategy may have made sense in that written ASX announcement, but McCarthy, at the best of times, a less-than-dynamic speaker, didn't seem to even try to sell it to his audience. McCarthy later conceded in an interview for Ben Hills's book, Stop the Presses, I was presenting something I didn't believe in, and it wasn't really me. His message to staff that day was similarly uninspiring. In a pre-recorded video more reminiscent of a hostage being forced to read out a script than a motivating update, he woodenly read from his spiel. He even sighed slightly as he said the words, These are exciting times. Within days of that November update, the board sacked McCarthy. Highwood was installed as acting CEO, with many assuming it would soon be permanent. Says Highwood, They said they would go for a global search, and I was encouraged to put my hand up. I said I'd only do it if I would be seriously considered. In February 2011, 
Highwood's role was confirmed. Despite the fact that he knew Anthony Catalano's plans, Highwood's return to Fairfax was good news for the cat. Indeed, it was fortunate that Highwood had been briefed. After Catalano's redundancy, the board had heard a lot about Catalano's minus points from his former colleagues who had ousted him. Highwood set about persuading Chairman Roger Corbett that unless Fairfax found a way of buying out Catalano, the company would lose the rest of its Victorian real estate revenue when the weekend real estate ads came under attack. And it would be even worse if News Limited did a deal with Catalano first. If News had bought the weekly review, they would have pulled all the agents out of the age, says Highwood. Catalano suggested a plan. Nobody knew more about real estate publishing than him. Create a joint venture. Fairfax could buy half of his business for $42 million and throw in $30 million worth of Fairfax's real estate assets. Taking into account cash already in the business, the deal valued the weekly review at $144 million. Catalano would run the whole thing. They agreed on the principles quickly. Then, in typical Fairfax style, it took more than a year to formalise the deal, finally announcing it on the 23rd of December 2011. Fairfax of the Future Highwood made one of his first public appearances after becoming CEO at the Mumbrella 360 conference at the Hilton in Sydney in June 2011. He was a last-minute addition to the programme, and we had to jam him into one of the smaller presentation rooms, which was packed. On stage, he cut to the chase with a line that summed up the issue perfectly. The model that defined Fairfax for 150 years was essentially a monopoly around print classifieds. That's fundamentally gone. What Fairfax has done over the last 15 to 20 years is fundamentally redefine its business model. We are now a news media and digital transactions company. The journalism was something which was a decision of the proprietor to add on to the core business. What made the money was not so much the journalism, but the classifieds. He asked a rhetorical question. It's not an easy journey. How many companies fundamentally lose their business model? How many do that, remake it and continue to prosper? Summing up the problem is one thing, but solving it is, of course, another one altogether. Behind the scenes, Highwood was working on the Fairfax of the Future project. Bain & Co., frustrated by the experience of working with an uncooperative McCarthy, had to be persuaded to return. There are many ways of measuring the health of a company. Most people lean towards the annual EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxation, depreciation and amortisation number. That gives a picture of how much profit a company made on its trading before it had to pay interest on its debts and perform other accounting treatments. Says Highwood, Fairfax was making a $400 million EBITDA, but that was dropping by $100 million a year. We were $1 billion in debt. It was a genuine existential threat It was two to three years until the banks would be called in. In 2011, Highwood called a circulation summit for relevant staff. His central question, which sounds like an obvious one, but went against how the newspaper business was being conducted, was, if the company printed only the newspapers that were being bought by genuine readers, what would it do to the economics? The implications were massive says Highwood. It was a fundamental question. Let's take the dross out and run it like a business. Let's do some work on how many papers actually get bought and actually get read. It was a third less than were being printed. Catalano, a former circulation director of the age, says he was among those giving this advice to Highwood. I told him to cut out all the bullshit one cent copies, says Catalano. You can rationalise your print costs if you only print enough for real sales. Having seen it firsthand during his previous stint with the company, Highwood had already reached this conclusion himself. It was the key to everything. 
the apparently fixed costs of printing newspapers were the biggest drag on profits. The biggest fear from sales staff was that the advertisers and media agencies would react badly, says Highwood. It turned out that by then, the advertising agencies didn't believe the numbers anyway. The first hint of the new direction came in August 2011, when Highwood went public that Fairfax would be cutting what he referred to as unprofitable circulation. All those educational freebies and car park giveaways were over. The days of popping into Fitness First to grab a free Sydney Morning Herald were done. The official circulation numbers would take a hit, but the company would save a mozza on the print costs. And readers were about to see the cover price rise too. As advertising fell away, circulation revenue was going to matter more. The economics had changed. The battle was no longer about getting to readers at almost any cost in order to put ads in front of them. Now readers will be challenged to pay for their journalism in print and online. The public's 10-year free trial of digital news was coming to an end. By February 2012, Highwood was predicting the company would be cutting its running costs by $170 million within two years. We needed to make sure that every decision we were taking was about creating a digital future, he says. Yes, we will publish newspapers, but only what is economical to publish. We wanted to signal to investors that we were on a new path, and we wanted to signal internally that if you were not part of the digital future, there wasn't a place for you. And there was another bigger, or rather smaller, move to come. Broadsheet newspapers were old-fashioned. In the UK, The Times and The Independent had already moved to tabloid size, while The Guardian had found a halfway house with a mid-sized Berliner format. Under David Kirk in 2007, Fairfax had said that its plan was to switch to Berliner, like The Guardian, but it turned out it would cost considerable money to retrofit the presses to accommodate Berliner. Once Kirk was gone, the plan was quietly shelved. It was time to go tabloid, or as the trade press marketers preferred because it sounded less down market, compact. That wasn't the half of it. The company was going to close its print works at Chalora in Sydney and Tullamarine in Melbourne. Thanks to the reduced circulation numbers, Fairfax could still print all the papers it needed at the former Rural Press print works in Richmond at the edge of the Blue Mountains in New South Wales and Ballarat in Victoria. With non-unionised labour at those plants, staff costs were about 30% less per head too. And the brutal round of job cuts wouldn't just be for printers, but for journalists and other staff too. There were tears in the newsrooms from journalists who had no idea it was coming. Highwood made the announcement on 18th of June 2012. In the same auditorium where McCarthy had blown it with investors seven months before, Highwood shared the bad news with his staff. Simultaneously, an announcement was dropping on the ASX and a press release was being distributed by email. Although he'd been flagging cost savings, the scale of it was a complete shock for the industry and for staff. When we put out a breaking news alert from Umbrella, more than a thousand readers were on the news article within just a minute or two. It was our biggest day of traffic to that point. The human cost dominated the headlines. The annual cost savings were now up to $235 million. That was a lot of jobs, 1,900 of them. It was the worst day ever for Australian newspaper jobs. Overlooked in the news was the accelerated digital strategy. The online versions of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age would be going behind a paywall within months. It was to be a metered model. Readers would get a few free reads each month and then be asked to pay. And the company would move to a digital-first publishing policy. Stories would be published as soon as they were ready, not held for the next day's paper to hit the streets first. The announcement ended with a comment from Highwood. Our investment in quality journalism and our editorial standards 
will not be compromised. The senior editorial staff disagreed. Less than two weeks later, the Sydney Morning Herald's editor-in-chief and publisher, Peter Frey, editor Amanda Wilson and the Age's editor-in-chief, Paul Ramage, were all gone. Wilson had become the first female editor in the Herald's 180-year history only a year before. It was a short tenure. I'm Umbrella's Editor-at-Large, Tim Burrows, and that was the first chapter of the audio edition of my book, Media Unmade. Although that one was cross-posted here on the Umbrella cast, you'll need to be signed up to the Unmade email newsletter to get the rest of the audio book. It only takes a moment. Go to unmade.media. Once again, that's unmade.media. This special edition of the Mumbrella Cast was brought to you by Sesame. Being chased by the content beast? Get Sesame, the magic marketing platform that creates and shares branded content at scale in no time. Slaughter the content beast with Sesame now. Go to sesame.com. That's S-E-S-I-M-I dot com.